Good morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning and grateful for all of you who could be here to worship. I'd like to offer a welcome to visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. And feel free to take part in our worship time this morning. Brother Kendall is not here this morning. Their family is on a western trip this morning. He will be preaching in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. So that's about as far away from here as you can get in the United States. Um, I think their worship service probably will begin in a couple of hours, about three hours behind us. So that's where they're at. Before we begin, let's pause and pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, this morning we want to learn of you and to know your ways. We want to know the path uh, on which we should walk in this life. We need wisdom, we need understanding, and we pray as we look into your word uh, where we ask your Holy Spirit to show us your truth. And Father, we would desire to obey and to do what you call us to do. Thank you, Lord, for your promises and for your goodness. Pray for Brother Kendall as he preaches In Bonner's Ferry this morning, we ask you, Lord, to enable him to speak your truth to the congregation there. Also pray to be with Lloyd Mass this morning as he preaches at Cornerstone Chapel. Ask you also, Lord, to be with him. Give him grace as well. Lord, wherever your people are gathered today, might your name be lifted up and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last time that I preached, I kind of did an introduction to the Beatitudes and the Kingdom of Heaven. It's the path I'd like to continue on this morning. This morning, I would like to entitle the message, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And as I was studying through the Beatitudes, at first I kind of looked at them and I thought, you know, you just take them at face value. They are what they are, right? And what is there to say about them? And I thought, well, but it's what Jesus said, so I want to study it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll take three or four this morning, and we'll kind of go through those. And then I started studying some more. Finally, I realized I think I better only do one. So that's my plan this morning, is to look at uh, the first beatitude. A bit of a review of the last time I preached. We called it the upside-down kingdom. It's not my, that's not my, uh, I haven't coined that phrase. Many of you have heard about that. And in God's kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, uh, we define that kingdom as, last time I defined it as, it's the place, it's the range of God's effective will where what he wants done is done. That's his kingdom, where God's will is done. And so Jesus comes and introduces that kingdom as being a present reality. It's here. It's among you. You can be part of that kingdom. In that kingdom, the person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of that kingdom. And so everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. So even, in a sense, nature and what is, God has set things in order, they are part of his kingdom. They, have, they respond to his will. What he has set up happens. So the area where his will is possibly not done is in the hearts of humans and in, in the lives of you and I. And so each of us has to make a choice Will I be part of this kingdom, or will I choose to be part of the kingdom of this world with which we are born into? I like to read together the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. 
Um, I'm only going to be focusing on the first one, but I like to read them all together to give you a sense of where Jesus is taking this. So if you're able to stand, if you don't have a baby on your lap, or you're not ill or um, having difficulty, please stand with me, and let's read this together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Thank you. You may be seated. Two major life questions that humanity has always had to face and still faces today. The first question is this, which life is the good life? As people grow and mature and become adults, they set a course in life and everybody's trying to have the best life, right? What is life about? What can I get out of it? And so there's a wrestling with what is a good path? And Jesus gives, gives some definition to what true blessedness is and where that is found. In fact, I believe that's why Jesus gives us the Beatitudes. They help bring clarity to where is a life of blessing to be found. And we may, we may be surprised at times by, by what Jesus says. That's the first question. Another question we see, and this is maybe further on into the Sermon on the Mount, is the question, who is truly a good person? And when you, see, when you read through some of Jesus' stories, parables, examples he gives, he tends to upend what was thought to be good. And sometimes, like, like I think I mentioned last time, the story of, of the Good Samaritan, uh, an unlikely hero of the story, and yet, what makes a person good? So two questions people tend to wrestle with at some point is, what makes a good life, <clears throat> and how do we find goodness? Because the, the truth is, if you ask almost any person, what makes a good person, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going to have a definition for that. Now, it may not be the right definition, but every person in their own mind has a sense of what is good. And they may, that, they may define that out of their own, just their own thoughts, what they think is good. But that's the question we wrestle with in the Sermon on the Mount is, well, who truly is a good person? And what, what is it that makes goodness? <clears throat> who has the kind of goodness that we find in the person of God himself? I'd like to define our terms. I may have mentioned this last time. I don't recall if I did or not. But Beatitudes, it's the only place we really see this term, uh, is the Beatitudes. So, so what are they? Why are they called that? A definition I found is the Beatitudes, or the, the word Beatitude means supreme blessedness, exalted happiness. So as you see Jesus' description in the Beatitudes, he's describing a supreme blessedness you can experience based on what follows. Supreme blessedness. Well, what does it mean to be blessed? Another definition here for blessed, or blessed we say sometimes as we read this passage. To be blessed, it's a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus 
ministry. The first part of that I kind of like. <clears throat> it's a state of well-being. So when, when, we, when we even express this sometimes, we say it here at church sometimes in a testimony or otherwise, I'm so blessed. We're actually kind of saying that things are good here with God and I, and I'm experiencing goodness from him. It's a state of well-being, it's, and it has, it's, it's giving credit to God for that, but in a sense, we don't often talk about blessing when, we're, when our relationship with God is, is not good. So it has to do with our, very much ties into our relationship with God. So with that in mind, as we enter the Beatitudes, and particularly the first one this morning, how can we, how can we look at the Beatitudes and understand them in proper context? Probably many have understood that these Beatitudes, as you go down through them, as we read them, probably many have thought of them maybe as a bit of a formula. It's a list. It's a picture of the ideal Christian. You know, if you're poor in spirit and if you're mourning and, you know, if you could just do all these things, that would make you the ideal Christian. But is that really what it's saying? Are the Beatitudes something that we simply aspire to? Well, if I could only do that, I could, I could achieve blessing. Well, what did Jesus do with the Beatitudes? And I want to I focus a little bit this morning on how Jesus would teach, because I think it helps us understand the Beatitudes. Um, <clears throat> you know how Jesus was already confronting the Pharisees many times about maybe a false righteousness or a righteousness that was of no value because it was hypocrisy and it was simply a form. We know he kind of confronted that, them on that. So would he simply go make another list? Now, it's like, now here's my list, and if you do this, then you'll be blessed. I think it goes a little bit further than that. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm struggling a little bit this morning with my voice. With what Jesus has already taught on the kingdom of heaven, that's what he introduced. With his previous teaching on the availability of the kingdom of heaven to all those who come to him, we should assume that the Beatitudes are a further clarification of what is in the kingdom of heaven, what characterizes those who are in this kingdom. And here is maybe a summary statement um, to help you think about this. This is actually not my own. This is from Dallas Willard who writes this in the book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says it this way. They, meaning the Beatitudes, they serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message, the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself. He uses the examples of people who, from a human point of view, are regarded as most hopeless and most beyond the possibility of God's blessing or interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundant provision from the heavens. One thing I don't want us to miss here as we talk about these, the blessedness of the Beatitudes is that you can't separate them from Jesus himself. None of this blessing is possible without relationship with Jesus. So as we see the, the poor or the poor in spirit, it's not simply those who... They strove for that, and because they got it, they're now blessed. No, it's, you, you can't have that absent of Jesus. You can't have that state without knowing him personally. So these things are a result of personal relationship with Jesus himself. He's the one who, who brings about that change. But the examples he gives, it's kind of like the unlikely ones. And, and so let me, let me just give a few more statements here to maybe help you understand where I'm coming from. Let's talk a little bit about Jesus' method of teaching. 
you read the Gospels, the Gospels are full of stories. And as I was thinking about that this morning a little bit, uh, think about how, how information was transmitted back in those days. Now today we have, we have media and we have, we have, we're in an age of, of, I don't know, we have an information highway just blasting at us all the time. And there's so much information and so much things, we can't even absorb everything that's out there. But think about back then. You have none of that. You have no way of, of transmitting anything, news, um, teaching, whatever it is. And so when a teacher comes around, first of all, you want to go hear what he has to say because, hey, what, he might have something we've never heard before. And then secondly, when he comes and he uses story, stories are so accessible to the average person. So the average person back then who had probably didn't spend a whole lot of time, maybe some of them had, were in synagogue, but maybe some weren't. And you think about just their everyday existence, especially poor people who basically their lives were consisting of survival. And then someone comes and they speak in story. All of a sudden, just imagine what, I mean, I think their imaginations were probably maybe more vivid than ours because we get overloaded sometimes. We, we've heard and seen so much that, you know, we're almost not impressed anymore because it's got to be really dramatic to get our attention. But here comes someone and he, and he talks in, in form that is relatable and he talks to them in, in ways that they can understand. And so, as you see his parables and as you see the Beatitudes, he refers to things that are present, circumstances. All right, so in, in the parallel passage for poor in spirit, in Luke, he says, blessed are the poor. So Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. Well, the poor were everywhere, all right? So already he's talking in a way that, uh, yeah, they know what that means, the poor. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, they may be poor. But that was very understandable to them. So he talks about things of ordinary life. Think about the story of the sower and the seed. Well, everyone understood exactly what he meant by sower and seed. So the picture was very vivid to them. So Jesus takes things that are present reality, that are understandable to them, and he uses those things as a vehicle to teach truth. Now, the difficulty of parables was not that the stories weren't understandable. The difficulty was, was the truth attached to it. So in one sense, you have Jesus taking something that is very observable and very firm and concrete. I mean, yeah, I understand this. But then he would bring a, a meaning over here, and, and often he would go and explain it later to the disciples. They were like, what in, what in the world did you mean by that? It's not that they didn't get the story, but the meaning of the parable sometimes to those, remember he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. So for those who couldn't hear, didn't have spiritual ears to hear, it was a great story. But Jesus used that method as a way to attach uh, eternal truths and kingdom truths. So that's, that was one way he was doing this. And he used things from their immediate setting. Another thing that Jesus did in his teaching, and I'm going to give a couple examples of this this morning, is he would teach in a way to... By the way, I have some of these up here. I forgot to click through them. I already mentioned these two here. The third one here, Jesus also taught to correct prevailing assumptions and practices that were thought to govern the situation at hand. Let me explain that a little bit more. So everybody had their understanding of how the world is. And um, I'm going to share a story here in a little bit about the rich young ruler that kind of upended this idea. So, so he's using everyday language, he's using everyday examples, and then he, he teaches in a way that makes them think a little bit differently. And it helps them understand that the priorities of the kingdom of heaven don't always line up with the priorities of the kingdom of this world. 
And so it left people shocked and surprised sometimes and, and maybe wondering, well, then who can be part of this kingdom? So that's just a method, uh, especially like when he talks about, about riches. And the last one I want to mention here is when he uses parables. Par- uh, parables are not just good stories that are easy to remember. Rather, they help us understand something difficult by comparing it to something with which we are very familiar and always something concrete, specific. I already kind of mentioned that. Something understandable, and he attaches maybe a difficult kingdom truth to it. So understand how Jesus would teach. He teaches in story. Uh, I don't have the percentages, but if you were actually to, I've, I've heard it before, if you go through the Gospels and you look at how Jesus taught, most of his teaching is either in story form or in illustrations. A very effective way for Jesus to teach. That's how, he, that's how he communicated this truth. So that's his method. So now we enter the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I already mentioned that the other account, which is called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. There he says, blessed are you poor. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? To the listener who's, who knows what it means to be poor, and he knows what everyday reality is for a poor person, how on earth could it be that you are blessed in this state? And is there even a difference between to be poor or to be poor in spirit? I think often we probably tend to think of it in terms of being humbled, and we'll see some of that here as we go. Let's, let's deal with the first part here as well. What does it mean to be poor? In, uh, in James chapter 2, verse 5, now this James, remember, is the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote this, and he mentions this as well. He says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? Why did Jesus have an eye for the poor? I think I asked this last time. Is there a benefit in being poor for the sake of being poor? Are you more favorable in God's eyes because you are poor? I don't know how you define poverty. None of us here are truly poor, but we do have our different levels. Even in a church like ours, there are different levels of of wealth, perhaps. So are you better off if you're on the, the bottom end of the spectrum? It almost seems that way. James says, hath not God chosen the poor of this world? And if you look throughout history, probably the highest percentage of Christians through history tended to be poor. Maybe it's because the poor believed more readily than the rich. And if, again, if you go back to their context, how good of news is this that the poor actually have hope? Now, I think it's a little, it's hard for me to grasp this because we have grown up in a land of opportunity. If you've grown up here, which I think all of us have, you grew up here in the United States of America, in the West, uh, we, have, we have lived in an economic system that provides opportunity for almost everyone to have a better life, right? I mean, that is kind of our reality. So if you grew up poor here, hey, with, with hard work and with, you know, saving money and, and scrimping by and budgeting... Almost everybody can better their life through hard work. I don't think that was the reality of the ancient world. To be poor was to be poor. How are you ever going to make, how are you ever going get to get a step up? Because for most people, it was probably subsistence living. You have a little plot of land, you farm, you eat, 
you had your class systems, you know, even the Old Testament talks about, you know, with, with the king particularly, how much of the resources of the nation went just to take care of the king's needs and his whole, you know, his whole empire. Uh, they had to give, pay taxes so that he could have all his servants and all his horses and all this luxury. And so the prospects for the little guy, the poor man, were never good. But Jesus comes along and says, and so think about it. So in, in a sense of, of, of kingdom theology or in kingdom thinking, for the poor person, there was never any hope of being like elevated to, you know, king. Someday I'll be king. No, you never thought in those terms. There was no hope. And then Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's a whole different way of thinking about life all of a sudden. And so is it any wonder that the poor suddenly thought, you know, this is actually good news. There is actually hope for something better here. I don't have to uh, always suffer and struggle. Now, many of them probably hoped for uh, an immediate change. You know, if I can be part of this kingdom, of course, I'd like for my, I'd like for my life to upgrade and improve. Some of these things maybe were never realized, but the promise is still there. To the kingdom of heaven is given to those who are poor. Someday they will have true riches, and that can be an exciting uh, eternal reality. Jesus also quoted Isaiah. Remember when Jesus goes into his hometown, and he, he's given the scroll, and he, he goes into the synagogue and on the Sabbath, and he opens the scroll, and Jesus reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, he says a lot more than that, but he specifically mentions he has come to preach the gospel to the poor. In this case, as he, as he shared this, he told his, his hometown people that, that he's the one who fulfills this, which, of course, made them angry, and they tried to kill him. But Jesus came, and he specifically says he came to preach the gospel to the poor. So again, I ask you the question, is, D, is Jesus teaching that we should become poorer? Is the answer for us to, let's just be destitute? Is poverty always better than riches? Well, what did Jesus have to say about the rich? Because he did have some comments about that. Jesus comments on the rich, and he upends some common assumptions about wealth. When I first was reading this, and when I first encountered poor in spirit in Matthew, there's a part of me that wants to simply dwell on the fact that, well, it has to mean the humble. It's the poor in spirit. But he specifically mentions the poor, and he keeps coming back to that. And then he, then he also addresses the rich. Now, I don't believe Jesus is saying that the poor have an advantage necessarily in, in God's eyes, but there's still some very solid truths here that we need to know about wealth and about the rich. This is what he says in, uh, in the Sermon on the Plain. This is the, the parallel account in Luke. Now, in Luke, he mentions maybe the, the Beatitudes. It's a shorter list. But right after he gives that list in Luke, he says the, the woes. Woe is this person. Woe is that person. And here, the first woe is this. But woe unto you that are rich... For ye have received your consolation. So the woe to the riches, those of you that have riches, and that's, that's what your life is about, your consolation has been now. Whatever you, whatever you enjoy in this life, that's it. Woe unto you. It may have been good in this life, but that's it. It runs out. That's your consolation. Jesus also talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And in that story, uh, the rich man, of course, he, he feasts sumptuously every day. And the poor man Lazarus is there eating crumbs off of his table. Well, they both die, and the rich man, it says, goes to hell. And there he is in hell, and he's being tormented. 
And by the way, Jesus talks in this case about a literal hell. It's real. I think there's some doctrine otherwise in this day. But hell is a real place. And the rich man is there in torment. And he sees Lazarus. And he wants Lazarus to just, just come, just give me a little bit of relief. Drop of water is all I need. And this is what Jesus says to him. I'm sorry, not Jesus, but Abraham. Abraham is the one where, uh, who has the, the uh, poor man Lazarus there in his bosom. It says, but Abraham said, son... Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Jesus again talks about receiving the good things in this life. It was a temporal blessing. So Jesus is pointing out that for the rich, yeah, wealth is a blessing, but it is a temporal thing. And in this case, it led to the rich man's torment. And the third example here about wealth is the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and it's also in, um, I think it's Mark chapter 10, where he talks about the rich young ruler. This man comes to him and says, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? And of course, Jesus asks him all these questions, and he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And it says the rich man went away sorrowful. It actually was a real battle for him. I believe this rich man comes, this young man comes with a sincere desire to follow God. He sincerely wanted to do and live that blessed life. He wanted it, but Jesus pointed at the very thing that kept him from it and says, go sell your possessions. And it says, he went away sorrowful. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. So is it better to be poor than to be rich? Is Jesus saying that if you're rich, you can't go to heaven? Well, Jesus didn't specifically say that. He did say with God all things are possible. But Jesus pointed out that there was an extreme difficulty for this rich young ruler, for this rich young man. And God does not allow us to have dual loyalties. In fact, it says that those who heard this story, or those who saw this with the rich young ruler, when he says a rich man can barely get into heaven, it says they were shocked, they were astonished. Now, I mentioned earlier that one of Jesus' methods of teaching was to help them deal with maybe false assumptions that they had. Well, what was their assumption about wealth? What well, seems the assumption about wealth was that it's a sign of God's blessing. Wealth means I am blessed. So in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, how can the rich man be in hell? That can't be. And in the story, when, with the rich young ruler, Jesus says, he, he can barely make it into heaven. What? How can that be? If God's blessing him here, why is it so hard for him to get into heaven? But Jesus is confronting a false assumption that they should have known. Because even in the Old Testament, God had said very specifically, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. All your heart. He doesn't allow idolatry. He doesn't allow anything else to come in. And Jesus very, very aptly points out that in this case, wealth became the, the stumbling block. It became the thing that kept this man from being able to be part of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Jesus is saying how hard it was for the rich to put themselves under the rule of God. Wealth had a, had a power to it. And Jesus was calling this young man to take that, whatever that thing was that gave him power and get rid of it. Get rid of it, give your money to the poor, and then come under my rule in my kingdom. And he said it was too high of a price. 
And he upended that prevailing general assumption about God and riches. Was that unreasonable? No, it wasn't. We know how God feels about uh, other loves. So in this case, being rich does, that, does not mean that one is in God's favor, which further suggests that being poor does not automatically mean one is out of God's favor. Okay, So on one hand, he's teaching them to be rich is not an advantage, to be poor is not a disadvantage. But he's also not saying that to be poor means that you have immediate access without Jesus into the kingdom. Another thing he says, another encounter that Jesus has to help illustrate some of this truth. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus goes to have Sunday lunch. Well, it's not Sunday lunch, it's actually Sabbath. But it says that on a Sabbath, he goes into the house of one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisee has this big spread, and, and he comes in to eat bread. Well, I'm not sure why the man invited him, probably just because Jesus is a teacher, and he brings him in. It's not like it was a real friendly meal, from what it seemed like. But he comes in, and they're watching him, probably to find fault. And in this, during this time of the meal, he actually heals a man who shows up. He takes care of that. And then Jesus makes an observation to all the guests that are there. And he talks to them about humbling themselves. He says, when you come into a feast, don't go put yourself in the highest seat. Because, first of all, it's going to be shameful if, if the man of the house comes and says, hey, wait a minute, I have a more important guest. You know, move on down. And Jesus says, no, you start, you, you humble yourself, you sit in the lowest seat, and then you can be lifted up. So he kind of gives that whole, that whole thing. And then he gets to this part in the meal, and then he looks at, at his host, and he tells him this. He says, in effect, to the man who invited him, he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right, so Jesus is, again, bringing in a whole different value system. Now, as he's saying, don't ever have your family over for dinner. Don't ever invite friends. It always, is that what he's teaching? Well, I think he's going against a prevailing idea. So here you have a popular man, a Pharisee, a, a leader, and clearly the guests that are there that day are important. All right? Everybody that's there means they're there for a reason. You're somebody if you're at this table. And he, he points out to him and, and he, he introduces yet another value of the kingdom. First of all, don't exalt yourself. He told them about their seating arrangement. But he says, when you are a host, don't invite those who can repay you. Serve those who cannot repay you, and then your reward will be when? He said it's at the, at the resurrection of the just. It's a, you may not even be rewarded in this life. But for the person who is part of the kingdom and who has an eye for the kingdom, the priority is, is how can I serve others rather than how can I arrange my life in a way that benefits me? It made this man look good, I'm sure. He's hosting all these people. But Jesus brings another thing to, to knock away at some of their assumptions on who is good and what is good. Do not serve those who can give you something in return, but serve those who have nothing to give. And then your reward is eternal. It's an eternal future reward. It's not, it's not necessarily going to see, it won't always see fruit in this life. He is very certainly telling us to provide for more than our own little circle of mutual appreciation. Think about even your friendships that you have. And I want, want, us, want us to understand as we, as we talk about these issues of the kingdom, 
I don't believe Jesus ever taught with the purpose of cramming people's heads full of knowledge. All right? Jesus did not teach these things so that the people would be smarter or that they would have more knowledge about God. Jesus teaches these things, and he teaches them in practical ways because they should change your living. They should change our lives. And so when he, when he brings these concepts, we need to think about those. So how do, we, how do we invite people to our house if you want to get practical? Do we see our actions and the way we relate with people? Um, do we see those in a, in a greater eternal context that we possibly should be reaching out and serving others that cannot do anything for us so that we can give them a blessing and so that we can uh, show the love of God to them? That's the kind of heart and mind that we have uh, in the kingdom of God. Those are some different scripture examples. I'd like to look here a little bit yet. So, as I, again, like I said, as I was thinking about the, the issue of poor in spirit, I had to think a bit about, um, all right, is Jesus just emphasizing be poor in a, in a material way, be poor? Well, we already addressed that a little bit. There's disadvantages for the rich. Clearly, there's, there's issues there that keep them out of the kingdom. For the poor, uh, this can be good news. However, that still doesn't guarantee that we're part of the kingdom, right? There's no guarantee that just because of our material state that either, either we're in or out. And yet Jesus gives, some, he gives us some things on that. So I look back, so what, what did the early church think about this? And even some of the early Christians in the first couple of centuries, how did they view poor in spirit? Um, one other thing I want to just briefly address, and I'm not, that, I'm not really that smart on or knowledgeable about what all happened in the Reformation. But there is some theology that comes out of this that I think is incorrect. And this maybe comes out of the Reformation and Martin Luther. This idea of poor in spirit being somehow an idea that we are so destitute spiritually that there's just nothing we can do, and therefore we need Christ's imputed righteousness on us. All right? We do need Christ, no doubt about it. But is, is the point of these to say, is Jesus just raising the bar so high and saying, or we just say, well, yeah, we can't do it. We just need his righteousness. Could he clothe us with his righteousness? And that's, that's what the point is. Well, Jesus' commands and the way he teaches are, are, are things, they're meant to be done. They're meant to be obeyed as well. So looking back, where did the early writers, what did they think about this? I'm going to give you some quotes here uh, to help us understand what they thought about poor in spirit. Now, none of these men necessarily lived in the time of Christ, but they were in the first couple of centuries. And so if our ideas maybe are off a bit, sometimes it helps to look back and say, well, what did the early church think about this? Here's a couple of scriptures that they would have used um, to help indicate poor in spirit. This is a familiar one, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? To be poor in spirit was to be one who walks humbly with God. Another scripture they would have used is Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This is kind of a lofty passage. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? So God is talking about his vastness. Heaven is my throne, the earth, that's how big God is. And then he says, for all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. So God in all his glory and all his majesty has an eye for those who are humble and have a contrite spirit. 
have humbled themselves. That's how they saw that. Archelaus, who was bishop in Mesopotamia, this was about the 3rd or 4th century, he says, Jesus did not refer to those who are simply poor in worldly substance, but to those who are poor in spirit. That is to say, who are not inflamed with pride, but have the gentle and lowly character of humility, not thinking more of themselves than they ought. Hmm. Poor in spirit, he, he ties that directly to humbling ourselves, not being inflamed with, uh, with pride. Chrysostom, which was Archbishop of Constantinople, also in one of the first couple of centuries, he says, what is meant by the poor in spirit? The humble and contrite in mind. For by spirit, he has here designated the soul and the faculty of choice. All right? So when he's talking, he's saying those who actually choose this, they choose to be humble. Uh, not, he says, for many are not willingly humble, but they are compelled to be so by weight of circumstances. Jesus passes these by, for such is no matter of praise. In other words, just because you've been humbled uh, doesn't necessarily have any merit, but those who choose, who've made that choice. In contrast, he blesses those who are humble by choice and who lower themselves. Here he also means those who are awestruck and tremble at the commandments of God. God earnestly accepts such ones. By his prophet Isaiah, he says, To whom will I look? but to him who is meek and quiet and trembles at my words. There again, poor in spirit, they saw that as someone who is willing to humble themselves before God, put away their pride. Basil of Caesarea says, Poverty is not always praiseworthy, but only that which is practiced intentionally according to the evangelical aim. Many are poor in their resources, but very grasping in their intentions. Intention. Poverty does not save these. On the contrary, their intention condemns them. Accordingly, not he who is poor is necessarily blessed, but he who has considered the command of Christ better than the treasures of the world. These the Lord also pronounces blessed when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now he does, this, this writer gives uh, the idea that there may be those who choose poverty for a reason. Maybe they do choose poverty uh, or put themselves in that position so that they can, that they can evangelize. So he says that, that may be, that may be noteworthy. But poverty by itself is not the answer because even in poverty and even in a state of being poor, we can have those grasping intentions. We can have that desire to be rich or the desire for things. And the last one here, Clement of Alexandria said, It is not simply the poor whom he pronounces as blessed, but those who have become poor for righteousness' sake. These are the ones who have despised the honors of this world in order to attain to the good. All right, so even back then, there was an understanding that for those who humble themselves, who have a contrite spirit, those are the ones who are blessed as poor in spirit. Those are the ones who this command applies to. The early writers seem to have a clear and consistent understanding of the meaning of poor in spirit. It's not simply a state in life, but it is a matter of the heart. It's a conscious choice that we make to humble ourselves before God. Those who are willing to humble themselves, and, and there again, uh, when you look again at, when he, when he talks about the status of the poor, it's true of those who are humble. Very, I don't know of any world leader or any person who built an empire who is necessarily known for humility. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, all these different people who in, in time past build empires I don't know that you can build a worldly empire and be humble. 
But he says in the kingdom of heaven, that's what it takes. To be part of that kingdom, we have to humble ourselves, to be poor in spirit. That's what's different in the kingdom of heaven versus in the kingdom of this world. There is no merit in poverty, I already mentioned this before, for its own sake. All of us must come to God in repentance. There have been multitudes in time past and in time present. There have been multitudes who have been poor, hungry, and grief-stricken, and who have remained as ungodly as sin itself. Jesus is not saying because you are in this state alone that you will be blessed, all right? There is a chance for blessing, but we can go through these experiences. We can be poor. We can have grief in our life. We can have all kinds of painful experiences and yet be ungodly. That is still true. There have also been many who have, who because reproach, because of reproach for Jesus' sake, have rejected him and have filled their lives with bitterness against God and man. They are anything but blessed. This is further on in the Beatitudes when he talks about blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. There is a, he says there's still the possibility that we can be persecuted and not receive blessing. All right? So again, these Beatitudes are not simply because you find yourself in this state, you are blessed. But there's something that has to be happening inside for us to be able to experience blessing. And I want to end with that this morning. How do we find that blessing? First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 13. This is now, this is Paul talking. Uh, this is in the, the love chapter. He emphasizes and he, he verifies what Jesus has said here. He says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So Paul even points out as you could make yourself poor. You could sacrifice tremendously. In fact, you could give up your own body to be burned. But he says without love, it wouldn't matter. So we don't pursue these things for the sake of themselves. Something has to be changing in us. Paul also says in, in uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, he says this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? All right, we already talked about God's kingdom. Who is in? Who's in the kingdom? Well, those who are blessed are clearly in the kingdom. But then he says, the unrighteous are not going to be in the kingdom of God. All right, you cannot be uh, doing all these things and find yourself in the kingdom. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. All right, there's the list. None of these will be in the kingdom of God. But here's the encouraging part. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Paul is speaking to people who were outside of the kingdom. They fell on that list. They were adulterers. They were whatever they were in there. And Paul says, yeah, you were there. But what's different now? He says, ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So those who are part of the kingdom, those who find blessing in the Beatitudes are those who, they were outside, but they came in, it says they were washed. They had to be, they had to come to Jesus in repentance. You will not find the blessings of the Beatitudes unless you come to Christ, first of all, in repentance. And through repentance, we receive washing of sins 
He says that we are justified, which means we are, we are counted as worthy before God. And we are sanctified. We are made holy. We are continually cleansed in his, in his sight. And it's by Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So that's who gets in the kingdom. Those who come to Jesus in repentance. So that blessing of poor in spirit, those who have humbled themselves, those who maybe even are poor, but they've come to Jesus in repentance, they find that their status in life is, is blessed because they have a future hope. Those are the ones who get in the kingdom. The Apostle Paul's message was never inconsistent with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe today many have discarded the Sermon on the Mount as some future reality, that somehow these, these ethical things in the kingdom of heaven, well, that's for a future reign only. I don't believe that's true. I believe the Sermon on the Mount is applying for today. The kingdom of heaven is a current reality. And so when we see Paul talk about these things, he's verifying that this is true. It is a current reality. <clears throat> Paul does affirm that the poor in spirit are the ones who will make it into the kingdom of God. What's valued in this world today is not impressive to God at all. He brings these things to nothing. I'd like to close with this scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. I want you to listen to this. And this is, this is Paul talking. We already said that the poor, most times in, in, the, in history, it seemed like the poor were more likely the ones to come to Christ, the ones to come in faith. And Jesus, or Paul, as he writes this, he kind of indicates how God works and how God thinks. So listen carefully. It says this. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Just pause there briefly. God, he says, he intentionally has done this to bring to naught. So what, what, what man thinks is so important, and even in Jesus' time as he's addressing wealth and as he addresses uh, how, how they saw things, and he kind of shows them that, no, the way you see things is not correct. What appears to man to be significant in God's eyes, he says he does these things to confound the wise, and he uses the weak things. So as you see that description of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, well, they appear weak to the world. You humble yourself, you're going to get run all over, right? Well, God says, no, they have, they have the kingdom of heaven. The ones who mourn, who wants to be in a state of mourning? Who wants to have a life that's filled with sorrow? And God says, no, I take that, I can found the wise through that. I can take grief and I can take sorrow and I can do something with that. Paul brings that out. Verse 30, then he says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, please help us understand what you're saying in the scriptures. And Lord, we understand how you tried to teach us, how you use things to, to illustrate. Thank you, Lord, for the promises you give to those who are willing to come with a humble and contrite heart. And Lord, the very thing that maybe seems to, to go against our own nature, Lord, it says that uh, in the Beatitudes, those who come to you with a humble and a contrite heart are blessed when they come to you in repentance. And Lord, I thank you for the promises that you give us. Thank you, Lord, um, 
even for the reality that all of us have come outside of the kingdom. All of us have come with our baggage and our sin and our problems. And Lord, when we come to you in repentance, Lord, then you wash us and you put us on a new path and you bring us into your kingdom and it's a kingdom of blessing. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you also for that eternal hope that we can look towards. And Lord, we just want to give you glory for that. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the kingdom through your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.